Section 14 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization. By Edward Ford. Section 14. The Early Macedonians. Part 2. Having concluded peace with Bulgaria, Romanus had leisure to attend to other matters. The ravages of the Saracen pirates were effectually curbed, if not quelled, by a complete victory gained by Johannes Radanos over Leo of Tripolis, near Lemnos in 926. In 920, Romanus appointed his friend, Johannes Curcuas, general in the east, and under him the work of advancing the border was steadily pursued. For seven years his feebleness kept him on the defensive, but after the peace with Bulgaria, the thematic corps were again distributed, and Kurkuas controlled a really powerful force. His immediate opponents were the emirs of Tarsus and Malatia. Behind them lay other semi-independent Saracen appanages, whose armed strength was usually out of all proportion to their real power. We have seen that Omar of Malatia could once gather 40,000 men under his banner. Tarsus and other Cilician towns were huge colonies of raiders and slave merchants. Gibbon's sneer about the empire, throwing its entire strength against a single emirate, lacks point. In 927, Curcuas wasted Melitin and took Malatia, though for the present he was unable to hold it permanently. In 929, the emir of Malatia found himself so hard-pressed that he capitulated and paid tribute, and Curcuas crossed the Euphrates. In the dissolution of the caliphate, Armenia had recovered a precarious independence, though it was continually imperiled by dissensions between the princes and ecclesiastical differences with the empire. Curcuas and the Armenians, in cooperation, carried all before them. Armenia shook itself free from Mohammedan dominion, and Aklat and Bitlis became tributary to the empire, whose eastern terminus thus touched Lake Van. In 934, Malatia was retaken by the Saracens, but next year Curcuas recaptured and destroyed it, and formally reduced the emirate to the condition of a theme. Of its towns, the Moslems retain only Samosata and Dolike. In 941, Kurkuas made a very successful expedition into Syria, and in 942 he wasted Mesopotamia right up to the line of the Tigris, took Nisibis and forced Edessa to purchase exemption from Sak. 
by a large indemnity and the surrender of the famous handkerchief of the Saviour. He was removed from his command shortly afterwards, apparently on account of accusations brought against him by enemies at court. It seems clear that Romanus was convinced of his friend's innocence. Curcuas would probably have been employed again, but for his master's fall. The invasions of Simeon had naturally produced considerable disturbances in Europe among the Slavs, but after 927 they were again reduced to submission. Simeon's successor, Peter, threatened by the Magyars, entered into a close alliance with Romanus, whose granddaughter Maria he married, and received a yearly subsidy, in return for which he engaged to keep off the Magyars. His reign, however, was very troubled. His brother Michael rebelled, and some of his followers actually made a raid into the empire, and held Nicopolis in Hellas for a time. Servia, which had been brutally wasted by Simeon, placed itself under the protection of the empire. Peter could not entirely fulfill his obligations, and in 934 a Magyar raid was pushed up to the neighborhood of the capital. It was bought off, as was a second in 943. These attacks were trifling, but the Russian invasion of 941 was a serious danger. There had been a Russian raid under Oleg in 907, which had been bought off by Leo VI, but this time the attack was on a grand scale. The king of Kiev was now Igor, Ingvar. He appears, judging from the chronicles, to have been a mere hard-drinking, hard-fighting savage Viking. Possibly the attack on Mikkelgarth or Tsargorod may have been actuated by commercial grievances of the traders of Kiev, but probably it was a mere adventurous plundering raid. The flotilla which Igor collected is said to have numbered anything from 1,000 to 10,000 vessels. The fighting force of the kingdom of Kiev may have been numbered about 60,000 warriors, and there may well have been 1,500 miscellaneous craft, of course mostly small. The huge flotilla appeared suddenly in the Bosphorus in the late summer of 941. The danger was great. The fleet was watching Crete. The bulk of the army was in the east. The Russians blocked the Bosphorus and landed marauding bodies in Bithynia and Thrace, which behaved with hideous brutality. Crucifixion and burning alive were the common fate of captives. Only a few ships lay in the Golden Horn, but Theophanes, the patrician, who was placed in command, hurriedly patched up superannuated dromons and fitted out vessels completing. Expresses and fire signal orders were sent to Cappadocian Caesarea, to Curcuas, 
who called in every man near at hand and made forced marches on Chalcedon to compensate for the terrible disparity of naval force greek fire cannon were mounted on the broadside of each ship in addition to the usual single one in its turret forward and theophanes with his makeshift force of only fifteen dromons some hardly seaworthy sailed out to fight the russians their ships were soon engulfed in the swarms of their enemies probably they lost way owing to the impossibility of working their oar banks amid the impeding boats but the crews fought with desperate fury and repelled innumerable boarding attempts while the greek fire was fearfully effective igor is said to have lost two-thirds of his flotilla a statement which seems exaggerated and the russians fled theophanes with all his gallant squadron that could still be fought audaciously pursuing for the moment igor escaped owing to the bad condition of the byzantine ships but his shore detachments were abandoned curcuas marching day and night from caesarea came on them scattered in bithynia and swept them into the sea little quarter was given such prisoners as were taken were ruthlessly put to death a civilized power fighting a savage enemy must be prepared to strike hard theophanes overtook the flying armament in september and inflicted further terrific losses upon it only a small remnant finally found its way home the triumph was a splendid one the disparity in the size of the russian and byzantine vessels should not be allowed to obscure the fact that the former probably outnumbered their opponents in fighting men by ten to one theophanes and his heroic crews went out to what they must have regarded as a forlorn hope as gallantly as ever did the men of leonidas or grenville in nine hundred and forty five peace was conducted once more with russia thus amid general success increasing prestige and territorial expansion the reign of romanus i drew to a close commerce and manufactures were in highly flourishing condition the sailor emperor took good care of his fleet and the moslem piratical squadrons were held in check constantine porphyrogenitus was not without justification when he claimed that the roman empire ruled the sea the dark spot on the picture was the steady decline in the rural population from about nine hundred and twenty two onwards for some years there was a succession of bad harvests and many small proprietors disappeared as such their holdings being absorbed by the large estates romanus did everything in his power to check the evil in nine hundred and twenty two and again in nine hundred and thirty five 
he promulgated laws against the encroachments of the great landowners, without, it is to be feared, much effect. Economic laws fought against the laws of men, and the agricultural population steadily, if slowly, dwindled away. In other ways, the emperor did much for his people. Like Basil I, he was of them himself, and understood their hardships. He spent much in the building and endowment of hospitals and other charitable institutions. In no way, except his treachery to his son-in-law, can he be said to have deserved much blame. The nemesis of that treachery was to befall him in his old age. His own sons, for whom he had toiled and had perjured himself, conspired against him. Christophorus was dead, but Stephen and Constantine seized and tonsured their father, and sent him to the island monastery of Prote, December 944. They now assumed the supreme power and were formally crowned, ignoring Constantine the Eighth, Porphyrogenitus, who had been kept in the background for twenty years. This was too much for the citizens of the capital. Romanus had justified his usurpation. Not so his sons, who were besides guilty of disgraceful and unfilial treachery. Rioting broke out. Constantine the Eighth emerged from his study, and after some days of intrigue and popular ferment, the Lecapenian brothers were deposed, tonsured, and sent to join their father at Prote, December 27, 945. The patriarch was not molested, neither was Basil, the old emperor's illegitimate son, who was to play a great part in Byzantine history. Constantine the Eighth has passed the greater part of his life in seclusion and study, and was a dilettante in several departments of culture. Without regarding the flattery of his courtiers, it is fair to assume that he was considerably more accomplished than royal personages commonly are. He was a skilled musician. He had studied painting and sculpture, and appears to have produced pictures of some merit. He had considerable taste for literature, and not only encouraged and patronized authors, but composed several works himself. They include a biography of Basil I, a little pamphlet on the themes, a work on the administration of the empire for the benefit of his son Romanus, containing much valuable information, another on court ceremonial, the longest and apparently most carefully composed of all, and some treatises on naval and military affairs. Literary rulers who endeavor to write for the benefit of posterity are somewhat rare, but Constantine might fairly claim to be one. In private life, he was one of the best men who had occupied the throne. A faithful husband, an indulgent but not a careless father, 
in intercourse with his friends and dependents, a fine specimen of a kindly, amiable gentleman. His family life was most happy. With his subjects, he was popular all through his reign. Good men often make bad sovereigns, but this cannot be said of Constantine. There was no reason whatever to think that he was a non-entity. His lot was, of course, cast in kindly times. The empire was assailed by no great enemy. The Abbasid Caliphate was hasting to dissolution. Bulgaria, so formidable under Simeon, was now impotent. Saracen pirates may have been troublesome, but were not dangerous. The large fleet now stationed permanently in the Aegean was a bad stumbling block to the corsairs of Kandak. The Slavs in the Balkan provinces were being steadily drawn into the circle of Byzantine civilization, and many of their nobles were to be found among the civil and military aristocracy. Trade and industry flourished, and amid the general prosperity, the handsome, amiable, art-loving emperor might have been excused for closing his eyes to defects. Such, however, was not the case. The great evil of the times, the decline of the peasantry, did not escape the notice of Constantine. His novel of 947 follows the lines of those of his father-in-law. Like them, it was to be feared that it only temporarily checked the abuse. The splendid administrative system constructed by the Heracleids and iconoclasts and perfected by Basil I worked smoothly. Constantine had small need to personally interfere, but when he did so it was with reason and he had a long arm for evildoers. We are especially informed of the case of Crinitas, governor of Longobardia, who enriched himself by oppression and fraudulent jobbery in the corn trade of his province, and was deprived of office and fortune by the emperor. Finley may be right in supposing that there were many similar cases, but it is to be noted that if effective supervision could be maintained over the governors of distant Longobardia, the same was likely to be the case nearer home. Constantine attended carefully and conscientiously to public business, and made no more mistakes than a nominally despotic monarch, whose power is limited by that of a great bureaucracy, is likely to commit. His wife, Helena, assisted him in his task, nor need we suppose that her influence was always for the bad. Later in his reign, his youngest daughter, Agatha, who had been his constant companion in his study, was his confidential secretary. His chief ministers were Basilios, the bird, and Joseph Bringas, the latter by far the more important figure of the two, and the chief administrator of the empire until 
963. John Curcuas was restored to favour by Constantine, though the veteran was not again employed in the field. He was probably past active work. The Argyros family were also retained in office and favour, but the Foci of Cappadocia now became the most prominent of the great noble houses. Bardas, their head, who had served long under Curcuas, became commander-in-chief in the east. His three sons, Nicephorus, Leo, and Constantine, were appointing to themes. Another prominent figure was that of the eunuch Basil Lecapenos, who was retained in favor by Constantine. The appointment of Bardas Focas was not a success. The Foci had a bad reputation for avarice, and Bardas allowed discipline to relax, while he peculated the supplies and made profit out of prisoners. In 950, Saif ed Dauleh of Hamadan, now Emir of Syria, burst through the line of defense and plunged into Cappadocia, wasting and destroying. But on his return, he was overtaken in the passes of Amanus by the Byzantine army and entirely defeated, with the loss of spoils, prisoners, and baggage. In 954, Bardas Focas was superseded, not before it was time, by his son Nicephorus. But the first essay of this afterwards famous chief was unsuccessful. He was badly beaten by Saif Ed Daulay. The army had evidently become disorganized, and while Nicephorus toiled at the work of reconstruction, the emir of Tarsus made a naval raid along the Cilician and Pamphylian coast, but was gallantly met and defeated by Basil, general of the Kibirayot theme, with a small naval force of his district. By 958, Phocas had thoroughly reorganized his command, and everything was ready for the great advance now near at hand. In that year, Leo, Phocas, and Basil Lecapenos marched for Samosata. Lecapenos defeated the Saracens in the field, and the stronghold passed once more into Roman hands. In Europe, the Magyars made their way through the feeble guard of Bulgaria and pushed up to the neighborhood of the capital, but they were defeated and driven off in a night surprise by Potus Argyrus. In 959, a great expedition under Constantine Gongiles was sent against Crete. It landed in the island without difficulty, a fact which shows that, like Algiers, the Kandak robber horde had no real offensive power, but Kandak itself was enormously strong, and the besieging force met with disaster. Constantine began to make preparations for a fresh attack, 
but his health was already failing. He tried to recruit by a tour in Bithynia, but without avail, and returned to Constantinople only to die. November 9, 959. His death was widely lamented, so much so that it was attributed to poison administered by Theophano, the low-born beauty whom the kindly emperor had permitted to marry his son Romanus. She was capable of crime, as we shall see, but there is no evidence that she repaid her father-in-law's kindness by plotting his death. The accusation seems ridiculous. Romanus II calls for little notice. He was a gay, pleasure-loving young man of twenty-one, by no means unamiable, though he obliged his sisters to retire into monastic privacy, but more occupied with the delights of power than its duties. Quite possibly his character would have matured and strengthened with advancing years, but he did not live long. Joseph Bringas controlled the administration, and great preparations were made to settle the Cretan question once and for all. Nicephorus Phocas was called from the east to take command, and in July 960 a fleet of 300 war vessels and 360 transports with a picked army on board sailed from Pigella near Ephesus and blockaded Kandak by land and sea. The place was strongly garrisoned, and there was, besides, an army at large in the island. A Byzantine detachment was cut off by it, and Phocas had to destroy it before he could securely besiege Kandak. This was successfully accomplished. The pirates were remorselessly hunted down and massacred, and hundreds of heads flung as a ghastly reminder into Kandak, which was closely blockaded for many months. In the spring of 961, the siege was pressed forward, and on May 7, the great stronghold was stormed. The slaughter was great, and the booty of every kind enormous. Crete, after the lapse of 135 years, was again a part of the empire. Meanwhile, Saif ed Daulay had deemed that the absence of a great part of the army of Asia afforded a fine opportunity for a raid. He entered Cappadocia and did much damage, but on his retreat he was waylaid by Leo Phocas near Andrasos, and utterly defeated, hardly escaping with his own life, and losing almost all his army. This fine success seriously weakened the position of Kabdan, the Hamadanite, and in 962 Nicephorus, after being complimented and fated at Constantinople by his sovereign, prepared to take the offensive. 100,000 splendid troops were concentrated at the frontier. Leaving part of his force to watch Cilicia, Phocas marched through Taurus with the remainder. 
stormed the frontier fortress of Anazarbus and entered northern Syria. Saif at Daule had made desperate efforts, but his army was untrustworthy, and he could only stand on the defensive, while Phocas took Dolike and Membij. A huge levy from Mesopotamia and southern Syria was advancing to his rescue, but Phocas was too quick for them. The emir was in a strong position before Aleppo. Phocas turned his flank and forced him to fight in the open. He was totally defeated. His palace outside the walls, his treasure and stud captured. His beaten troops and the citizens quarreled and fought, and amid the internecine strife the city was stormed. A part of the garrison escaped into the citadel, which was too strong to be carried by assault. But for ten days the victorious army worked its will on Aleppo. Phocas did not care to risk a battle with the oncoming Syro-Mesopotamian host. His line of communication was not very secure, and before it arrived he quietly withdrew. But his army was burdened with prisoners and booty, and sixty strong places on the slopes of Taurus and Amanus were permanently gained. In Europe, the Magyars had once again made their way through Bulgaria into Thrace, but were defeated by Marinus Argyros. On March 15, 963, Romanus II died very suddenly after a reign of little more than three years. His manner of living sufficiently explained his early death, but popular gossip naturally attributed to poison administered by his wife, who was in childbed at the time. It might be more reasonably ascribed to the great landowners, since a fresh law in the interest of the peasants had just been passed. Actually, there is no ground for believing it due to foul play. We have seen that the early Macedonian period was one of considerable military success and territorial expansion, but for the most part the head of the state does not take the field. We have now to deal with an age of great military emperors, and are justified in especially indicating it as the era of the great conquerors. End of section 14 Recording by Mike Botez.